Covenant Church, uh, and welcome to our neighbors. I'm glad to be with you. We have been going through a series that we've called What If Jesus Was Serious? And we've taken a really slow, uh, slower than I think anybody is comfortable with, look at uh, one of Jesus' longest sermons. So it's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It covers three chapters in the Bible, Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. And we've taken it like a paragraph at a time. And it would be one thing if this was like a, a fun sermon to like dissect, but this has been a heavy hitting sermon. And I don't, know about you, uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like every week I walk out of here like with a gut punch. Like I thought, thought I was doing okay. I thought like I kind of understood how the world worked or I felt like I knew my place in it. And I come to the words of Jesus for some comfort and some encouragement. And he's like, uh, no, buddy, it's, it's worse than you thought it was. And simultaneously, it's better than you ever could have dreamed. If we look to ourselves and we begin to trust in ourselves and, and, and our ability to navigate life, then, then we're going to fall flat on our faces and we're fall harder than we ever thought possible. And yet, Jesus said, I came to fulfill all of this and your hope is in me. So I think, um, I think the calculation is somewhere at 11 weeks we've been working through these verses. And so this is uh, technically like the 11th part of this series. And so for those of you who have journeyed with us through all of this, I have some news which you may rejoice at, you may not, that this is the last uh, time that we're going to be in this sermon for a while. We're going to take a couple weeks and have some different conversations, um, take a break from, uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but if you're new here, the good news is because we are closing this series, I'm going to do a lot of recapping and a lot of pointing to things that we've already talked about to try to bring it all together and, and hopefully um, tie some things that maybe we're kind of hanging up in the air, tie them together so that we can figure out how to take some of our next steps. So uh, kind, of a, kind of a big goal for the morning, but you guys look like you've had your coffee, you've got your Dignity Roasters in you, so you're ready to roll. Um, so let's begin together uh, by praying, and I'll need the Lord's help, and I suspect that you will too. And our habit here together at Neighborhood Church is to pray uh, the disciples' prayer. You've probably heard it, the Lord's Prayer. But this is the model of prayer that Jesus left for the people that are following him. And it's helpful if we're going to pray it together to use the same words, so that's why the words are on the screen. You probably memorized different words as a kid. But um, let's uh, bow our heads together. And you can pray with your heart or you can pray with your voice, whatever you're comfortable with. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So I've mentioned it a couple of times. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. If you want to navigate there, Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 43. It's on page 1012 in these blue Bibles that are kind of tucked under the chairs in front of you. If it's easier for you to find it there, 1012 in the blue Bibles or Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. And I've already hinted that we're kind of in the middle of a thing, so we're just going to, he's going to come out swinging as we begin to read. So get ready. You might want to put your hands up like this as we start. 
Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we'll pause there and, and we'll backtrack a little bit. We'll go and, and, and kind of dismantle these verses a little bit. And, and he starts with, you have heard that it was said, which is a pattern that he's been using. If you just look at the page and you look at the paragraphs where the paragraph breaks are looking backwards, you have heard that it was said. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said. Verse 33, you have heard that it was said. Verse 31, it was also said. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said. So what he's doing in this section is he's saying, you guys have heard some scriptural principles in the Old Testament, and you have applied them wrongly. So you've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. So you, you, you took this law and you found some loopholes and some way to get yourself off the hook. And what I want you to know is I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not abridging the law. I'm not discrediting it. I'm not getting you off the hook. But I'm saying that the heart issues the, the law was meant to address, you've completely overlooked. You think that you are meeting the standard and you're not. It's deeper than you thought it was going to be. You have heard it said... But I say unto you. Now, I have not yet made this point, but I wanted us to get the weight of this repetition. How many times does he say this? And I want you to think just for a moment about the uniqueness of what he's doing here. Because as uh, um, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, if you're reading through the Old Testament, which we did right before Easter, and you get into the prophets, the people who are speaking on behalf of God, the phrase that they will use often to begin the conversation is, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. And so the prophet is not bringing his own message. He is bringing a message that comes from the lips of Yahweh, the lips of God. And, and so that's where the authority comes from. When the teachers and the scribes who are listening to Jesus' sermon from the outside, as, as they hear this, when they were teaching, they would have said uh, something along the lines of the law says or the Torah says or uh, something like that. So they're, they're, they're referring to the written word. It might be the law and the prophets. So not only are the prophets are hearing what God's saying, the teachers later are, are referring to what is written. But when Jesus begins to give teaching... He does not refer to the authority of what God has said or the authority of what has been written down as a record of what God said. He says, you've heard it said, you've heard what was written, but I say unto you. Now, we're probably uh, used to some arrogant preachers who would say, like, this is how it's got to be. But, but it actually was really, really unique. And I'm going to give you just, just a preview. Uh, if you just flip one page over to the end of chapter 7, this is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. The, uh, Matthew 7, 28. When Jesus finished these things, so at the end of the sermon, 
The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So there's something unique that has been playing out over the course of this chapter. He's been drawing their attention and their affection away from necessarily what has been written, saying, I have the authority to give you clarity about what God meant because I was there when he gave the law to begin with. I have the authority to clarify this to you which was something that no other teacher should have ever been able to claim and hasn't since he was on the earth. So, something that we haven't quite yet talked about yet, but has been repeated, and I think you get the weight of it now. He says, you have heard it said, I'm back in verse 43, we've been around, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, uh, there's, a, there's a quotation there. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But the quotation is referring to the way that they understood the teaching to begin with. So when they were going into Sabbath school, the rabbis would stand up and they would say, you know, the Bible says that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But what the Bible actually says is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The and hate your enemy is actually an addition that doesn't show up in the law. Uh, if you want to take a note and go back and look at it, it's in Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19, um, which if you're not familiar with Leviticus, like kind of a crazy thing, um, that that's where that comes from. Like we, we love, like you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you're like, yeah, 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 Jesus said that. And he was actually quoting Leviticus. And like, I don't know what Leviticus is. Like, yeah, like read chapter one of that. And you'll be like, I don't know how we got to love your neighbor from kill some goats, but that's where we ended up. Like there was something going on here that was really, really important. And so Jesus wants to articulate, you've heard it said that there's this, this teaching that says if you love somebody, it's a zero-sum game. If you love your neighbor, then that means that you're able to then hate your enemy. But I say unto you, what? Love your enemies. You guys can read. I don't have to do this for you. Love your enemies and pray for those who why? So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So if, if you've been tracking with us, it's, it's a long, like I'm going into your long-term memory. We're going to pull this back out. Remember where we started in Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning? He goes through these Beatitudes, uh, or what we call the Beatitudes, is a description of what the good life looks like. And Jesus' picture of the good life is completely backwards to anything that we would say. Um, but he says, and in that, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. So, so peacemakers are those who pray or who love their enemies and pray for those who persecute. It's not, we're not talking the revolver. A biblical peacemaker is one who loves their enemy and prays for those who persecute them. There's a contrast here. Um, I, 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 I was a musician by training. That's kind of my thing. Like I, 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 hear, I hear things in songs. And, uh, and so there was a, a group that I, I, was, I, I was a super fan of. They're, they're called Thrice, and I'm not a super fan anymore. But there was a season where they were working through um, some albums, and, and on one album, they had a song um, that was, um, 
Greater love is no one than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. It's a really, really beautiful song. Uh, there's an interesting story to how the recording actually worked out. It was written for and in memorial and honor of those who had laid down their lives in military service and those who were coming home. And so there's this, there's this dichotomy as they're playing with this picture of going off to war and coming back fewer in number. Greater love has no man than this than that he would lay down his life for his friend and camaraderie. And on the next album, it struck me that they had shifted from that idea to uh, what, a, what a tireless and violent mystery that one would give his life to save his enemy. I'm pretty comfortable with the idea, and I celebrate the idea, that we would lay down our lives for our friends, that we would, that we would go to bat for one another, particularly those of us in the church. Like, yeah, that's, that's probably one of the biggest causes of, of church hurt is that there are people that we trust to, go to have our back, and when they don't, like, that's, that's wounding. And I, I fully agree that we ought to have one another's back, but... but the biblical principle here, what Jesus is driving us to, the spirit of the law, is not only that we would love our friends and the people who look like us and the people that smell like us and the people that talk like us, but that we also would love those that talk the opposite and those that talk angrily towards us and those that are mad at us all the time, that we would not only love our friends, but that we would love our enemies and pray for those, not those who like are kind of you know, passively aggressive, like, I don't like those guys, I don't, I don't want to spend any time with them. But no, 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 those who persecute us, that our prayers would be towards them. It's not a, it's hard to make this a passive thing. It's hard for this not to hit close to home. So our, our big idea, hopefully our, our, our takeaway from the morning is that we put Jesus first when we choose to love our enemies. No, and, and I realize that I need to do some defining of terms because I'm using, the, I'm using the term love in a way that is not actually very common in our day. Like if you turn on the radio, they'll talk all about love, but they're not talking about what I mean when I say love. Like when, if you ask 20 people what love is, you'll end up with, you know, 25 definitions of what it might possibly mean. And it's one of those things that we can recognize when we see it, but we don't often have vocabulary to describe it. And oftentimes, uh, our culture teaches us that love is, is an emotional thing. It's, it's something that we feel or, it's, or something like that. And there's a component of that. Um, I was taught this definition, that love is meeting the needs of others without expecting anything in return. So to love someone is to meet the needs of others, the, the best needs of others, without expecting anything in return which is a difficult definition, is a lot of words. So the last time I was working through this, I, I, I summed it down and boiled it down into two words. Love is a selfless loyalty. Love is a selfless loyalty, meeting the needs of another person without expecting anything in return. I, I'm, I'm pretty good at figuring out like how I can help you help me. Cool. Me and Ashley are on the same page with that. <laughs> I'm pretty good at figuring out how to help you help me, but love is looking out for the best interests of another person regardless of what it costs you, without expecting something in return. So then, so then, America, let, let us hear this, that love is not a feeling, love is a choice. Not a burning for a moment. 
but a choice to choose the other over yourself. So I've got two questions, they go together. The first one is pretty easy. Uh, whose definition of love do we prefer? Do we prefer the amorphous, I can't really define it, it's just kind of a feeling, I just fall into it or fall out of it, or mushy? Or do we prefer the definition that love is a choice that I can be, I can be responsible and accountable to whether I chose to do it today for my spouse, for my brother, for my neighbor, for my boss? Whose definition of love do we prefer? Okay, sure. How do we show whose definition of love we prefer? What are, what are the marks of loving our enemy or loving our neighbor as ourselves? What are the things that we do? How do we show whose definition of love we prefer? And what needs to be corrected if we're going to follow Jesus? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Let's pause there. There's, this, there's a theological category of what's happening here. Um, if you get into the commentaries and the theologians that really, they like to make up words for things that are actually pretty simple. But the word for this is not difficult to say. It's called common grace. Can you say common grace? Common grace is just the grace that you get by the, the function of being put into creation. So infinite creator God puts you in a system and the system has a certain way to work and there are good things that happen in the system like rain which waters your crops which makes your food which means you can eat which means you can live like there's a common grace that's extended to everybody rain falls on everybody whether uh, whether there's a, a moral a moral uh, righteousness or not there are, are wicked countries that have uh, great economic success but it's, it's driving back to the creation. That God himself is the source of all life for those who trust him, amen, and for those who hate him and want nothing to do with him. Ooh. The creation is the foundation of all of our operations in the world. And this is... Man, this is a rabbit hole. I probably have too many notes here, but this is a thing that I really like to talk about. So I'll try to do it really, really quick. Creation is the foundation of our operations in the world. So when we talk about our faith, um, I think a great starting point to talk about your faith and what you believe in and blah, 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 is to go back to where everything started. Where, how did we even get here? Where does it come from? And I actually think that it, you need more, um, what's, the, oh man. What's the thing you got to do when you're watching a movie, like a summer blockbuster movie, and you got to go, oh, there's no way that car could actually fly like that. What's that called? Cognitive dissonance. You got to have a, you got to have a, a little bit, sorry. <laughs> you got to have a little bit of cognitive dissonance where you're like, okay, I can hold this intention. I'm having fun watching this movie. It doesn't matter that physics doesn't work like that. And I think you need to have more uh, uh, cognitive dissonance to, in order to believe that everything that you see just kind of happened accidentally with no purpose. 
than it does to say, there's an order to all of this and it keeps going in a certain direction and so maybe something, someone started it and designed it and it's working out the way it was designed. That's my presupposition. I'll be transparent on that. But let's go back to creation. All of our, all uh, creation is the foundation of all our operations in the world. If, if, if someone made everything that there is, then perhaps we should trust the one who made it, perhaps. And if that's true, then it also should play itself out in our relationships. If someone made everything that there is, including me, that I had no choice in like when I was born or who I was born to or what kind of money we had, like I just, I just, got, I just showed up and figured it out, I guess. Um, but the creator tells me that I was made in his image, I was made to be a picture of him, I was made to represent him to the rest of uh, creation, and I look at my mother, and I look at my sister, and I look at my children, and I go, they also were created in the image of God to be a picture of him and to represent him to the rest of creation. Then I know that we're on a certain kind of playing field and that we need to interact at a different level. Gosh, I'm sorry, that was a lot of words. Did that, does that make sense? We follow that? Okay, I told you I'd get excited. Our work is the same, I, I, I could go on. Um, what, what do we have? What do we own? What, what, would we, what would we put our name on that was not a gift to us? My name's on the mortgage. But there's no way that we'd have got that house if my grandmother had not been generous with her inheritance. And I did not have any control over the timing of that. Like when I look back on how we got into owning a house, we were a month away from being homeless. And so here I am five years into home ownership and I can, my name's on the mortgage and my parents live under my roof. Let me tell you something, these millennials are taking over the world, whatever that is. I can, I can get on that high horse real, real quick. But when I actually pause to reflect and ask the question, what do I have that's not a gift? Like, there's nothing. And what power do we have to control our circumstances? Jesus just pushed into, like, don't swear by your head because you can't make your hair gray or black. There's dye, but your roots tell you the truth if you're willing to listen. So, so creation and, and, and our own limits, I'm not a fatalist. I'm not saying that there's nothing you can do and you just go with the flow all the time. And like we can turn Buddhist real, real quick. That's not what I'm advocating for. I'm just saying that there are limits to the things that we have control over. And if there are limits to those things, but not limits to the creator who made them, then maybe we should trust him and what he's doing in the world and in our lives. We're endowed with the same inherent dignity that every other human being on the earth is endowed with. And so then, my brothers and sisters, how might we show a common grace to every other person on the planet? How might we possibly <laughs> extend a common grace, regardless of how they've treated us, regardless of what we can get back from them, how can we extend a common grace to every person that we interact with? 
And there, there, there's layers to this that I don't know how to unpack. Like we have more knowledge about what's broken in the world than any, any generation ever has. And so there's limits to how much we can handle. But let's start with the commitment of putting Jesus first and choosing to love our enemies. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the, the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what, are, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? So, so, so there, he's, he's painting a picture here. Um, of tax collectors and of Gentiles. So tax collectors is, is a special uh, category of, of people that are chosen from among a community to represent the government to that community. It's a, it's a curse. There's no other way to put it. So if you're the guy that's got to take the money for the, the emperor, that's bad news. But the emperor also wasn't paying you. And so the only way that you made income as this representative of the, in, of the emperor was for you to take more than the emperor was asking for. You send the emperor what's his, but you get whatever you took that wasn't already claimed. And our hearts are real quick to make some gray areas and exploit some weaknesses in the system. So these tax collectors generally are a disreputable group of people. And yet... They love those who love them. Of course they do. <laughs> have, have, have you seen Mother's Day ever? Everybody loves the one that loves them. Uh, Gentiles is another group of people, not a word that we use a ton, but, but for the, the audience that Jesus is talking to, they all grew up uh, reading the Torah. They, they were born into this family heritage of being Jewish, and, and everybody who was not Jewish was considered other. They weren't supposed to spend a ton of time with them, and they were all called Gentiles. And so when a Jew hears the word Gentile, they think, oh, I'm, I'm definitely not them. Whatever they are, I'm not, I don't want to be associated with them. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than even the Gentiles? If you greet others. Man, again, like I, I need to take a break from this because Jesus got me right in the gut. I've got a neighbor and, and everything, like a literal neighbor across the street, that every, every turn of this relationship, every time we have tried to show kindness to her has been met with hostility, and not, like, not even a logical hostility. Like, the things that happen just don't even actually make sense. And so I've gotten to a point where I literally, like, and I'm your pastor, confessing, I'm just a dude. Like, I just don't talk to her. I, I pretend she doesn't exist. I, I see that she is outside, and it's like, I do not even, it, I'm gonna do my thing. Like, completely ignoring. <laughs> But if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? If you greet only the people, if you only say hi to the people that you know are going to smile back and not give you the bird, or whatever, it goes down to greet, like that was, like, Jesus, you got to go to, you go to saying hi, like, come on now. Like, I can love her by, like, not wanting to burn her house down, but, like, do I have to say hi to her too? How 
how might we extend a common grace to everyone in our lives? But our personal faith in Jesus should transform our presence everywhere we end up. Our personal faith in Jesus, our personal walk with Jesus, our personal following or fellowship of Jesus transforms our presence and how we show up everywhere that we show up. And we show up in a lot of different places. You know, grocery stores, work, you know, family reunions. But what if there was like a community of people that asked the question, hey, what if Jesus was serious about this? And what if we follow Jesus and he, and he sends a helper to help us with this and like we embrace the principles that he's teaching? Would, would a community of people stand out like that? Would, it, would a community of people stand out who refuses to retaliate but meets any hostility with graciousness? Would, that, would a community of people stand out if they did that in this world? What about a community of people who was super careful about the words that they said, but they were reliable in everything that they spoke? Would, would that be an unusual set of people in our world? What about a group of people who took responsibility, not only personal responsibility, but a corporate responsibility, not just for their own sin, but for how their sin impacted other people, took responsibility for how their behavior might impact people that they might never meet? Would a group of people stand out, would a community stand out that treated each person in all of creation as a picture of God in the world? rather than an object to be exploited for personal pleasure or gain? Would a community of people with the emotional maturity to be offended and yet continue to seek the good of the one who had offended them? Would, would a group of people like that stand out in the world? What about a group of people that are hated. They continue to say hi and greet and wave and smile and extend kindness to even their enemies. So that's a summary of pretty much everything that we've talked through. If you want to go back through the verses, they're all there. But that's Jesus' plan for the church. Jesus transforms the chemistry of our soul as a sign that he plans to transform all of creation and restore it. So how are we known among our neighbors? I already told you how I'm known. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Those verses kept me up at night before. In different seasons in my life, this is one that I've really, really struggled with. And gone to the mat with God over, how dare you? How dare you? You've, you've highlighted all of these weaknesses in me, and then you, you're going you're gonna to cap it off with, hey, you've got to be perfect. 
got to be, you just, you just highlighted every shadowy corner of my heart. Not only the things that I do, but the things that I neglect to do. Not only the things I neglect to do, but the, the, the desires that I have in my heart about things and about people and about stuff. Like, every, you've, you've shined a light in every dark corner of my life. And then you say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Mm. Let me go back to one more passage. Do not think, in, in chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As I describe the community that Jesus has in mind, and the people and the character that Jesus wants to embed within us, there's a temptation for us to rally. And be like, yes, we can do this. We can be that kind of family. We can, we can love one another well and we can extend kindness to our enemies. Like, we can do this. We can be that kind of church and we can have that kind of reputation. And if we charge up that hill in our own strength, and we've missed everything Jesus has been trying to convey to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know they're completely bankrupt apart from Christ. It's not, it's not kindness. It's not human kindness we're looking for that we need. It's superhuman kindness. We can't walk the road unless he walks with us. Unless he holds us up and drags us along. So will we trust Jesus to transform every aspect of our being? How we think. How we speak. Our bedroom. on our street? Will we trust Jesus to transform every aspect of our living? Will we put Jesus first when we choose to love our enemies? Would you pray together with me? God, we need you. There's no way to get around it. If your law is perfect and you are perfect and, and you ask us to be perfect, then we don't have a hope. The chasm between where I am and where I need to be is just too great. I have nowhere else to turn to and so I cling to you Jesus and our prayer here together this morning is that you would be transforming us to be the people that you meant for us to be all along you shower us with, with, with good gifts and, and common graces and so many blessings that we quickly take for granted and, and, and the one 
all of those things are meant to point to is that you'll buy our soul. Completely restore it. And fill us with true life. So Lord Jesus, those of us who've walked with you for a number of weeks and days, Lord, I pray that you'd rekindle the desire to follow. And perhaps that starts with an acknowledgement of how we failed. And for those of us who are skeptical about all this and not sure where you're at or what you're doing, I'm going to pray you'd give us the faith to take just that next step. To ask that next question. And to grow just a little bit more in our trust of you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.